0: listening to the jersey guys podcast the show that talks about hard rock heavy metal aor and west coast music in-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap so settle in and turn it up now here are your hosts tom and mark
1: Hey everybody, Mark from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always. Today we've got episode number 50 for you guys today, uh, the Big five zero, 0 and uh, our special guest is Neil Carter. Uh, Neil, of course, played with uh, UFO at a couple different periods of their career, and uh, he also played uh, with Gary Moore. So we talked to Neil about, you know, those times that he spent with those bands, and uh, we got some great stories along the way. Uh, real nice guy, uh, great interview, and uh, we hope you guys enjoy this one. So let's get right to this interview with Neil Carter from UFO and Gary Moore. Hey, Neil, thanks for joining us on a podcast. Appreciate it. Hi, guys.
2: Thank you. Nice to meet you. Meet you both. Yeah, yeah. same here. Pleasure. Yeah.
1: Um, well, we're going to take you through your whole career, your whole history uh, in music, and uh, I guess we'll start with uh, with Wild Horses. Um, it's a band that maybe a lot of people aren't maybe super familiar with, but uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that band. Uh, I guess the debut came out in 1980, was it?
2: It was actually, uh, the album, I think the album came out in 80. We, we formed in 1978, and uh, it was Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy, um, Jimmy Bain from Rainbow and Dio and all that. Um, and initially, Kenny Jones of The Who was, when I auditioned, Kenny, Kenny Jones of The Who was playing drums. Um, he quickly went, but um, I got the job with them. But uh, I was a very much an unknown. I'd only done, I'd done a bit of work with, I don't know if you've heard of Gilbert L. Sullivan, who's a singer-songwriter. And I did I did some work with him, but I did lots of things. I was a singer and whatever. So um, I just answered now an for in, um, in the one of the music papers here um, in England. And, um, yeah, it was it was really good. It was a very much a sort of a throw-you-in-at-the-deep-end rock-and-roll experience, because they were very rock-and-roll, those two, yeah. Jimmy and Brian. Right? Um, so, yeah, it was great. But, um, but they we did a lot of touring um, and a lot of small gigs, uh, but never really... The, the band didn't really take off particularly, which is a shame, because there was a lot of effort went into it, you know, but you know, it didn't really take off in the way that I think they all hoped it would, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, I got a question for you about that first album. Why was there not a a proper frontman singer as part of that lineup? Because I, I do in retrospect, and even from back there when the album came out, I do think the fact that Bane sang kind of held the album back somewhat.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's difficult. I mean, I think they but, but Brian did something, uh, but they, I don't know, it's hard. I, I, I'm not, because I'm, actually when I came to them, I was a lead singer, so which is very bizarre. Well, I was the lead singer with the band that I'd been in. Um, so, but Jimmy just took it on. He had a character, you know, he sounded sort of quite a characterful voice. Um, but I don't know whether, you know, it needed a, probably did need a frontman
0: singer. Right, that's what, I mean, that's what we felt at the time. I remember when the album came out that it it lacked, uh, you know, a, a proper frontman uh, yeah, that, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, I think very well intended. And some of it sounds, you know, funny, Phil Mobb said to me the other day, he played something on YouTube. We said Jimmy was the singer, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, Jimmy had quite a nice voice. It just wasn't, it wasn't distinctive as such. Right. You know? But the some of the parts worked quite well, but it did. You're right, it does.
0: Because the, the, the hype at the time was uh, a Rainbow member, then Thin Lizzy member. You know, the, the hype was there, but the yeah. there was something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they, they live life to the full. And um, they have both been in big bands. And I think they sort of carried on sort of with that men- mindset, you know? Right. Um, and mm-hmm. um, I think it cost Brian quite a lot of money, as far as I can remember. I think he, he had to, to, to bankroll it. And, of course, we didn't get a record deal for a long time. So there was probably about a year, maybe a year and a half, before we got the record deal and then we did the album and then um i got an offer to join ufo so i, I left but it, but um it was quite a long time just dating you know um, to get, get a deal I, th- I think i said to someone um, a few weeks ago that if the band had had maybe more support slots so they'd done the support route rather than playing little tiny places in England we, you know they needed to be with a big band to be seen by more people right and we only mm. did we only did we did a few dates with Rush we did a few dates with Ted Nugent uh, just before I left but really a support slot would have been better you know to go out and tour and just support a big act and you know, let more people see you you know that, that I think that's what would have needed to have been done but we never did we always play these funny little clubs and funny little places that um, you know you'd only play to the faithful you would know and no one knew would see you, if you
0: were and when not, I think appeared on a couple of shows, right? Or was, were you still in the band at the time? You...
2: Yeah, I was. Yeah, Phil was. Um, he he played. He used to come along and um, join in. Um, Scott Gorham as well. We there was a sort of like um, a tradition with with that band of having people to come up and get. So at some point we'd had Mick Ralph's, we'd had. Michael Schenker, we'd had um, a whole host, Ronnie James Dio, had a whole host of people come up and just sort of sing on the encores or play on the encores or whatever. So, yeah, so it was quite, there were quite a few come and gone through the years. And in fact, with Gary, it was Gary Moore, it was the same thing. We always had people come up and play or whatever, you know, during during an encore, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Well, you talked a few minutes ago about, um, you know, how after uh, the Wild Horses uh, album, you went on to UFO, uh, I understand it was, uh, was it Phil Collin from Def Leppard who yeah. kind of yeah. introduced yeah, you to um, the
2: uh, UFO guys? Thank you, Phil. Um, no, no, bless um they, they, um they knew, they played a lot of shows with Girl, I think it was, it was Phil's band before. And Phil and I were quite well, sort of good friends, not friends, but we were good acquaintances at the time. And we used to hang out quite a lot. And I think it, it was Phil that sort of put me to, to said to Phil Monk. You know, really, you know, Neil be ideal for the band when Paul went, Paul Raymond went. Um, so that that was how it came about. And I'm not sure whether, apart from having John Sloman to do the keyboards on the Wilder Willing, um, and I don't think John was ever going to be a permanent member of the band. I, I, you know, John's a fantastic singer. You know, I don't think it was the sort of thing for John to do. Um, but I was sort of in a way I was ideal um, for them because it was quite an easy transition um, for me to join the you, know, you know, and and it was a step up.
0: From, uh, from Wild Horses for me. Yeah, I'll ask you the same question I asked Steve Mann two weeks ago. Um, what, was there any pressure on you? I mean, you, Paul Raymond was a very established figure at that time. Yeah. So, so to step into his shoes, did you feel like you had to try to be Paul Raymond or did they allow you to have your own identity or create your own identity? I
2: think I I, I would say that, I mean, I own Paul quite a lot because – Um, I tend to stick with what he did
0: on a lot of the numbers. That's what Steve Mann said, the same thing.
2: Yeah, so I don't deviate because actually the parts work. There's no point in, um, you know, in sort of reinventing the wheel. You know, the stuff that Paul played on the things that we play now, we did, um, the classic stuff, I didn't see any point in reinventing it. Then, of course, I did three albums with them. Um, So I was able to, rightly or wrongly, establish my own sort of, Presence within the band, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I, I I really respect what Paul had, had done with UFO. You know, I don't think I ever felt. I never saw. I saw UFO once uh, before I joined them. This was years ago when I was with Wild Horses. So I didn't really know that much about them. I knew some of the songs and whatever, but I didn't really know them. So in in a way, it wouldn't faze me to go into the band because I'd not really followed them. Particularly, You know, I, I was, like I said, I was aware of them, but I hadn't followed them. So, therefore, I didn't know much about
0: Paul at all. You know, Paul, you you were in a different – this was a different incarnation of UFO yeah. with Paul Chapman. They were only one album and tore into the, the Schenker period. So, I guess with you and and Chapman, it was kind of like a new dimension of sound for them.
2: Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you, <clears throat> things just evolve. Things change and um, people come, they go, you know. Um, it's just a way of life, you know. So um, I, th- I think, um, I, like I said, the, the main thing was I hadn't really, that as far as, I was actually quite, my first big gig with them was headlining the Reading Festival in oh, wow. 1980. So it was 30, I think it was something like 33,000 people. And for me, that the challenge was actually just to get through the pieces and, you know, play and I had all the, wigs from the record company on the right-hand side sort of looking at me um that was more intimidating actually than anything else you know but actually for me i love big crowds so it didn't it doesn't that part it didn't worry me it was just the fact that i had that lot
0: standing there looking you know judging me and, and you know sort of yeah that could be unnerving absolutely yeah
2: yeah a little bit yeah but i i, I at the same time you know you just you just have to get you to you can't let these things um Get to you too much, so I I really enjoyed that first that first gig with you know big gig with UFO. It was great. It was fantastic.
0: Now, at at this point, the first album, did you have any contributions to writing? Did they like let you come in as as a full member, or would you? Did it take you some time to integrate? Yeah, the
2: the album had been basically done. The backing tracks had been done. And then Phil had to yet to do his vocal tracks. So I, I sort of, I suppose I was there, but I sort of didn't really, I was in through a lot of the, once I joined, I was in to, you know, the death of the recording, you know, I was there, there all the time and the mixing and all that sort of thing. So um, I did vocal harmonies, uh, did a couple of bits and pieces, uh, other bits and saxophone. Um, and so, you know, there, I, but my contribution really was, I would say minimal to that album as far as, and definitely, as far as Warrington went, I didn't. I didn't contribute anything as far as that went. But um, you know, I suppose you're just there, and you're 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 part of the team. Then you know, so I was part of the band, but um, a lot of it had done had been done between Paul going and me coming in. You
0: know what I mean? Because I'm I'm in the minority of UFO fans that prefer Paul Chapman over Michael Schenker. <laughs> And I I know I'm in the minority wow. with that, but there are people like me. I'm not by myself, but I, I no, per- no, no. personally I found the albums were more uh, cohesive from beginning to end than some of the the Schenker albums. And um, that that when you came on board from that period, like Mechanics, uh, I those are some of my favorite UFO albums because I thought the the songwriting and I thought that that. That unit at that time with yourself and Chapman was a really strong period that sometimes gets overlooked by the people that always say, "Well, it's 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 not Shanker, it's not the Shanker period." But I thought it I I thought it took on a uh, a progression.al Actually, from some of their '70s stuff, just curious about your thoughts about that.
2: Well, I mean, I think I think there's a definite there's a lovely sound to those albums so it's Michael Shane, you know the ones with Michael in and um, particularly Lights Out
0: and Obsession you know they're, they're well those are my two favourite yeah
2: yeah they're time capsules they've, they've got some fantastic stuff and of course Ron Neveson's production is very much of the time and it, it just they're, they do they're, they're lovely again you know I, I, before I joined the band I didn't really listen to them I'd heard the live album but I hadn't heard much of the other album so I think they are lovely they're definitely they're, you know definitely of a special place in time um, with my stuff with them I suppose we did, we did, we branched out a bit. Um, you know, we were trying different things. Mm. Gary Lyons produced mechanics and um, it went a bit wild in places. You know, there's a few interesting bits and pieces on there. But, you know, I sort of, I go, oh, no. you know, and yes. I, it's not everyone's, it isn't everyone's cup of tea, you know, but I, you know, I, I stand by what with by what we did, you know, I mean, that's, I like some of the writing some of the songs up there, you know, some of the songs, and it's nice for me to go back to UFO and play "We Belong to the Night" because that's now forty years ago, and yet, you know, that's one of the songs that we we, we are playing, well, we were playing, you know,
1: uh, right. uh, in the
2: recent gigs, you know. So that's great. That's nice to know. And mm. making moves, we play as well. We were playing, so it's good to do to have a nod to that era. But problem is, you've got so many songs that they could do. You know that it's very difficult to um, to actually get the balance right. If you leave out love to love, which takes how um, many minutes, or um rock bottom, you know everyone will be fed up. So you you know you have to. You've only got an hour and a half to play. You know, so um, they're, they're, but I I, th- I do like I like mechanics. I like some of the things on mechanics are, are nicely crafted, nicely worked at, and you know. But it, it either they're definitely schools of thought. I mean, if you look at some of that, I mean, I don't try not to. But if you look at some of the the fan sites and my, my partner does all the time and say oh you know what they're saying about you now you know and, and there people don't you know people are, are very dismissive some people are very dismissive at that time but um it was you know i don't think there was anything wrong with it at all you know it's um you know we we, we work very hard on those elements you know, both of the both of those elements you know mechanics and making contact were you know, very very hard work
1: yeah now, I'm a big fan of Making Contact myself. I was just talking with Tom about that. I listened to it on the way down to the podcast today. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that album. I mean, just the beginning, two two first two tracks on the album, you know, uh, Blinded by a Lie, and then it goes right into Diesel in the Dust, and it's just like two great, great tracks, you know?
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, I'm quite, I'm quite – it was a, an album made in sort of slightly different difficult circumstances, you know, but he had left, and we were left to do the album, and to do it, um, and, you know, I, I, again, if you just I think I think the problem is, you know, people listen to things that maybe the first time around and they think they just missed them. But you come back to them years later and actually listen. There's some good stuff on there. You know, it's it's, a, it's it's very well thought through. A lot of it is really really well thought through, and I'm quite proud of it. You know, regardless of whether it's a classic UFO album, it's still an album that that um, I actually feel quite proud of.
0: Yeah. Now, was Billy Sheehan on that album at all, or did he just did the tour? No,
2: he just did the first part of the um, European tour. He had the lucky, um, lucky job of coming with us to Poland. Poland at the time wasn't a great place to go to. It's a lovely place to go to now, but Poland at the time was in martial law, and it was. um, We were the first band to go there. um, I think for years, you know, Uh, and that was a bit of an interesting experience. But um, Billy didn't play on the album. But we thought Billy was ideal. You know, Billy's got a great. sort of stage persona and uh, he he was always his name was always around it's always being bandied around so he did the first part of the tour and then paul gray did the second part of the tour oh it was so, paul, uh, gray. Okay. paul gray okay because paul gray later
0: was with ufo after you yeah. had left yeah that, yeah that that next thing the misdemeanor incarnation That's,
2: yeah yeah so yeah so paul, paul was um, more in the pete um Way of playing, whereas Billy, you know, Billy's a a virtuoso. You know, he's, you know, so, so, you know, I I think Billy brought his own thing to the band, you know, definitely. But on the album, it was Paul and myself playing the bass. Okay. I think, I think we split it. uh, Paul played something like sixty percent of it. I think I played forty percent. I can't remember, but um, yeah. So we just played it. So whoever sort of was did what. You know, we just
0: sat and played the backing tracks with Andy, and then
2: did put all the other stuff on so but uh, some of it's me, some
0: of it's Paul So at that point was Pete Way looking to get out of the touring like what was the, how did he uh,
2: it? Well actually it's it's sort of, you read different things, you know, I mean I, I never had a conversation that any of us did with Pete about it, but he just didn't really want to, he didn't like Mechanics particularly as an album and um, I think he wanted more authentic ACDC ish rock and roll and we were uh, maybe right or wrongly we were sort of experimenting with that there was a pressure on you at the time really to have a radio song that that that's i mean that's why def leppard did so well because i had the perfect radio song you know um back in the early 80s and we all of us i mean gary as well there was a pressure on to do to to come up with a radio friendly song for america there was always this Subliminal pressure, but it was there, you know. Um, and I think we we sort of experimented with things. We didn't sell out, but we were trying to do our sound. But with that. and Pete didn't really like it very much. And I think that's why Pete went, and he wanted to do more straight ahead rock and roll than than, than we were doing at the time. I mean, it's nice that he came back to the band, you know. Um, but I th- but he just didn't like the, the mechanics particularly, you know. And uh, I, in, listening back, I can see what he meant. I mean, I can see what he meant from his perspective, you know. Um, but Pete was very much the heart of UFO, you know. So something slightly went after Pete went, you know. Right. But uh, it, it was all, it was all a bit chaotic. The whole band at that time was very chaotic, and it's not something that no one knows about, you know. It was um, fairly wild.
0: Oh yeah, no, I mean I've read his I've read his book and I've read all the yeah. all the surrounding books around that period yeah. of time. So it's by like... the way, I'm
2: I'm not a crossdresser, just so you know. Somehow <laughs> in Pete, somehow in Pete's book, in Pete, mind i don't quite know where that came from they probably make good copy, but uh, there was something about i mean obviously you know gay man but he um he he got in there somewhere and it just it was hysterical i think it must have been my wife's clothes i don't know but whatever at the time you know but, uh, but it was quite funny, funny when I yeah i just sort of thought really you know so anyway yeah <laughs> but just for the record folks
0: yeah well anybody that's read that book I wouldn't be offended by anything he says. it because no, 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 no. That no. is the most telltale. I remember when I finished that book, I was telling my friend, it's the only rock book I've ever read that I was depressed at the end of the, end of the <laughs> book.
2: No, no. Actually, unfortunately for, yes, I mean, in a way, it could have been such a good ride, you know? Um, and there were parts of it. I mean, I read little bit, you know, bits of it, but it was just also, like you said, it was a bit depressing. It I mean, really was, yeah. Shame, you know, Shane Pete's lifestyle and, his choices weren't the best, you mm-hmm. um, know, and he's put it all out there for everyone to read. It's like, you know, um, yeah, so, but there we go. Have you seen Ross Halfin's picture book of um, Pete, about Pete? Ross Halfin did a, um, after Pete died, he did this fantastic book of photographs that he had taken, Ross is like a celebrity rock photographer, you know, of all time. And it's a fantastic book. It really, really And it, is it's good. all it just Pete, it. it's all Pete way? It's But Pete with, um, mainly with UFO, obviously, a little bit of Pete with Ozzy Osbourne, and then it stops.
0: You know, I think I actually may have that book. I have so many I have so many music books, I forget what I have. I think I, is he on the cover, Pete playing the... Yeah. 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 And it's shot like, it's shot like he's... Like gigantic, yeah. yeah I have it's that incredible. book.
2: It's incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. It's such a brilliant book. And in the way, I was going to look at something about Pete. I would look at that book rather than you know, um, rather than piece um, novel. You know, I'd rather read. I'd, I'd rather look at that because that is you know, it's fantastic. It's um, it's a really really good well. Book he was there.
0: an iconic figure. I mean, even Steve yeah. Harris has said I've copied everything from this guy, <laughs> from the way he yeah. dressed to his stage poses to yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. He yeah. really was like an a, a base icon
2: yeah i mean um we we did a lot of shows with iron maiden um and if i made an opening for us you know which is ironic um but um yeah and so st- they were very much yeah yeah, yeah yeah you know and um yeah i could see that was how steve is and i watched occasionally i don't I don't look at a lot of the but I will see stuff as I Man. I can see where Pete where he got some things from Pete, you know. But um a lot of people just really looked up to him as a as a performer, you know, as well as a player, but as a performer, you know. He was uh, he was great from um you know, great oh, Forget
0: about he had great stage presence, yeah. I mean there was really very few bass players that had that type of stage persona. Yeah that absolutely. That, he, that he had. So so now that the curtain comes down on your your tour of duty in in UFL. How come you didn't proceed further with the misdemeanor? Or was that, is that was your introduction to Gary Moore at the time? Yeah, it was, um,
2: it was a funny funny thing because we decided we weren't, we were going to split up and um, um, things weren't going particularly well within the band. And then um, Andy Paul and I did some demos uh, just as a three piece and with me singing. And, there was then I'd sort of had these surreptitious offers to do some work with Gary Moore and another or, and another band. And Gary's career was on the upswing. And it was never, it was never really meant to be anything permanent at the beginning. I just did a tour um third on the bill, opening for Def Leppard with um Croakers in the middle. And we did a, an American tour. Um, and the playing with Gary was one of the pulls. playing with Ian Pace. Was another one, and Neil Murray was the bass player. Neil, I've known for years, you know. So um, it was, uh, it was just really good. I just thought it'd be a great thing to do, you know. Um, and I had to work because um, at the end of UFO, there was no money. There was no money whatsoever, and so if we didn't work, we didn't, we didn't live, you know. So um, I, it was something I just sort of had to do it to earn some money. But then, bit by bit, we realized Gary and I realized that we got on really well, and it was a good sort of partnership, you know. Um, so uh, that was the beginning of the stuff with Gary Moore. That, but, so it was an American tour of about three months, I think, something like that.
0: I, I'm in the process of reading the Gary Moore book right now, and I there was something in there that I, I never knew that. Ian Pace went through a period of time where he had problems with his timing and actually resigned yeah. himself from the band. I, I'd never heard that before.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was um, during the recording of um, Victors of the Future, and um, Gary, Gary Gary was... Yeah, you know he was he was he was such a talented, but in some ways that that can actually work sometimes a little bit against you because Gary had perfect pitch and he had perfect meter. Gary would tell if you were a, like a nano 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 second, either right or left at the beat, you know. Um, and it could get with drummers; it gets in their head, you know. And Gary would sit in the studio with a metronome and would say, "That's speeding up." slowing down that's right. And of course eventually he just to you. You know, I remember the evening, I can remember it vividly when Ian I think, just thought he just got into his head and he couldn't, you know, he just couldn't get it. He just couldn't get it in time. And it's happened to other people and this happened to me, either, you know, but um but you know other musicians that were working Gary had found the same.
0: Well him and Cosy Powell didn't exactly get along famously either. Eh?
2: Yeah, you know again I think the problem with that is that by the time um I mean the, the, he had worked with Cozy before and Cozy I mean the powerhouse. Drummer, you know, um, but um, by the time Cozy came to join us, Gary had been working with drum machines in the studio. So Wild Frontier and um, After the War were recorded with drum, with auto, um, automated drums. So and Gary had programmed every single fill, every single drum pattern into for the songs. So when it came to the rehearsals. Gary said, "I don't want to play them like that," and of course, you don't really tell Cozy, or you know, it just wasn't. It didn't sit well with him because it was a great. It would have been great, but of course, Gary just wanted it done like he was, like he he written it because he saw them as parts. He didn't see them as just like someone playing the drums, you know. Um, so anytime, so that became a real sticking point with Cozy. So he didn't really fall out with it, but it was just unfortunate that it just didn't work because he needed someone a little bit more malleable. And I think Cozy was just not, you know, he he was he was a talented, principled man, and he wanted to. He was Cozy Powell, right? Well, like, he was
0: an established figure. Yeah, I mean, at that stage of his career, he couldn't really dictate yeah. to him.
2: Yeah, you know, I just think he just didn't want to do it badly enough to, you know, to to be told what to do and be. Well, I mean, I never thought of us as backing musicians, but we were definitely supporting Gary. You know, that was uh, that was our purpose. Myself, Bob Daisley, and the endless cast of drummers. Um, you know, we were we were very much, and I never thought of myself more than the second lieutenant, you know, the first lieutenant to Gary's general. You know, I don't, I, I, it's it's not anything I have a problem with. I, I like, I find, fa- I find that role very, very comforting. Right? It's something I work well with. I don't want to be centre, you know, I don't want to be center stage. You know? I don't want to be the 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 you know the the one that's the. They've got the bother of being the uh, the main man, you know. So uh, so f- for me, my position with Gary worked really, really well. And within UFO works really well as well. Because I got, it fills the front man, you know, so it's perfect.
0: Well the, the rumour was back then that Gary Moore became really obsessed with the Use Thrall album and the Yes, drumming, he liked right, yeah. and the drumming, that massive drum sound that was yeah. on that album. Yeah. And he that's when that started with his, you know, being very picky with drum sounds and timing, and yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: I, th- I think it started a little bit before then. Like I said, with bits of the future, what was ironic was in, a, in a way because we we had because um, Neil Murray went at the same time, so we had the nucleus of the band was myself, Gary, Ian, and Neil Murray, and both Neil and Ian went went during the period that period in recording pieces of the future. And we had different drummers in. And in the end, the one that nailed it was Bobby Chenard. I don't know if you heard of Bobby Chouinard. But oh, Bobby played it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Billy Squire. And Bobby, Bobby, bless his heart, was the most shambolic person I've ever met in my life. And he was like all over the place with all arms and, you know. But for some reason, he just managed to... Gary was happy with the way he locked in. So it's a lot of Bobby on that that album. And then because of the Hughes Thrall thing, um, we got... Jeff Glicksman to produce, I think, and um, Gary Ferguson, who was the drummer. Who was the drummer
0: on that album, yeah.
2: Yeah. So Gary came and played with us. And of course, initially, Glenn Hughes was going to be in the band as well. Right. So um, we had some time where Glenn sung on uh, Run For Cover, and then that didn't work out very well. So Glenn went, and then Bob came back in again. So Bob Daisley was in and out over the period of time, because he went to Aussie and... He was doing various things, you know, so um, yeah. So we, Bob became the permanent bass player after that. He was uh, a permanent bass player to the end. But I mean, Glenn, it would have been fantastic with Glenn because I, I I mean, I was always, when I was a young, whippersnapper, um, Glenn was one of my heroes. You know, he was absolutely one of my heroes. Oh, me it, too. It single, yeah, me too. you know, so yeah. yeah and uh, Although I don't think he actually ever noticed I was there, um, it was quite nice. It was quite nice to actually be doing demos. We did a lot of demos, and and then he was, you know, singing in the studio and whatever those out for those for that album. But it was um, it was great having him there. It's just a shame again. It just didn't work out. You know, just I, I don't think there can be like Gary said at the time. You know, Glenn wanted billing, and or, you know more a more of a presence. And Gary said, well, I can't call it Gary Moore plus Glenn Hughes plus Neil Carter plus whatever. You know, he just it was, it was always called Gary Moore. You know, so and that wasn't an ego thing of Gary's; it was just how it was. It was Gary Moore. You know, so um, yeah, so that was that was really so. Um, so that was that was where the drum sound and that sort of um, thing came together. And we had Mike Stone do a couple of tracks, I think, as well. Um, there's quite a few producers on that.
0: Now, were you with Gary Moore at all? Any period of time when John Sloman was there? No, no, John he predated um, you,
2: right? <clears throat> yeah, actually, funny fact: I followed John into, into two bands. I'm um, thinking about it. I mean, yeah, John was. John did uh, the early part of 1983 with Gary, and with Dom, Don on Airy. And then when when I went to I went to sort of listen to them live. I, I played. Did, I went and I say audition, but I went and played along with them. And um, then I went to watch Don playing with Gary at a festival in Holland. And uh, then Don, I think, had then had commitments, so that was why I was doing it. But then, because I play guitar, but I can't play keyboards like Don can. So in a way, it's quite, it was, for me, it worked out really, really well because I'm much more comfortable playing rhythm guitar and doing a little bit of keyboards rather than playing tons of keyboards, and not much guitar. You know, I prefer, I'm not really a keyboard player at heart. You know, I, I am more of a guitarist. That's how I feel, that's how I see myself.
0: So the reason I brought up John Sloman is because, as a fan back in the day, me and my friends would we felt that Sloman would have been perfect for Gary Moore because we all we all wanted to see Gary come away from the microphone because uh, honestly he sounded great in the studio. He sound sometimes was compromised live, and it just felt that a guy that with that type of guitar presence, you kind of wanted him just to have the the good front man and let him play away. And when Sloman was part of it, I kind of felt like, oh, this, and, and that, it fizzled out pretty quick. And yeah. was was there any feeling with him that he was, was he anti a front man or just he never found the right one?
2: I think he perhaps, he never, never found the right one. But also, again, it's like I say, this thing of this emphasis of Gary Moore, you know, so if you're Gary Moore, Gary, Gary's voice, I have to be honest, I mean, it did get, um, it did get, incredibly good as time went on. It was a bit screaming. I'm sorry, Gary, it's a bit mean, but it was a little bit you know I, th- I think if you listen to some of it now, if you listen to some of the live stuff now, um, it, it's a bit it's a bit forced and a bit screaming. I think it took him a while to settle. Um, but then some of the some of the songs uh, you know like empty rooms, you know he sings sung beautifully. Um, and so there was a lot of good, but there was a lot, a lot of the stuff we did, like Victims of the Future, like murder in the Skies, they were quite screamy. Yes. So I think he found with me, he could give me some of the singing and then it would give him a bit of a break. He could do, concentrate on his guitar. Um, and that was how that really worked. And I think that worked really well for us because he he was still the centre of you know the attention, but with me doing a bit of singing it mm. took the load off
0: in the mm. we we were actually talking about that before we went on the air we were talking about the Stockholm uh video yeah. with with yeah. Daisley yourself and singer and I was telling Mark I think that was the best Gary Moore lineup and you you accented his vocals a lot on that and for the better like you 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 covered a lot of those areas that you know normally he would struggle with without overtaking his vocals it, it really worked out I thought great and I you know any anything with Bob Daisley always works out great too. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah good. Yeah, I mean, you know that guy that guy is magic. So I, yeah, that, yeah, exactly. with with you Daisley and and Eric Singer is another question. How did he come upon uh, Eric Singer who was pretty much of an unknown at the time?
2: Yeah, it was through Bob actually. Bob had done something. I think it was something was it to do in Ira Heap. Anyway, somewhere along the line he'd come across Eric in some shape or form. And we, we had auditioned. I can't tell you the amount of drummers that we auditioned over the time, and famous, famous drummers as well, and people, sons of famous drummers. And, you know, we had Ringo Starr, some we had, we auditioned, I think Jason Bonham came to play with us a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be wrong about that, I might got that wrong. Um, we had, you know, all these really sort of known drummers as well, you know, Ted you know, there were loads of people. And, um, Eric came along, and there was something very special about Eric. And, uh, and it was my favorite lineup, particular lineup. It really was. I just think it visually, um, it had a kick to it. You know, um, you know, it, and you know, I mean, Eric suffered again from Gary's obsession with time. You know, and Gary would be screaming at him that he was speeding up, and you know, calling him everything under the sun. You know, but I think, I think Gary, I think there the, the was it really gelled. You as a, as a unit we really jailed personally and on stage. You know, there were they were lovely times. Those are my favorite memories of that of that band with that was that tour, was that Wild Frontier tour, uh, Wild Frontier Tour. It was fantastic. It was really, really good. So yeah, so Eric just appeared I, I hadn't heard of Eric at all, but um um I think it was through Bob Daisley.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they had worked together on Iomi's
2: um that's what it is. Yeah. I knew there was
0: something yes. there was
2: some sort of connection I believe right he
0: or Black Sabbath, but um, I, get, I lose track sometimes. I
1: yeah, no, you game. need a
0: scorecard for back in the yeah. 80s. yeah. Oh, well, yeah Tom, Tom and I
1: were saying, you know, the, the people you've played with in, in the projects and the bands you've been in over the years, it's, it's the who's who of the,
0: the yeah. classic a- British 80, 80s British hard rock. Yeah, it's, it's the best of the best.
2: Yeah, they come, they go. You know, particularly <laughs> uh, like I was saying about the um, the drummers. You know that that, that still mystifies me. And I think yeah. I worked out there. I think I played with Gary. I played with something like eleven drummers. Wow. Over the <laughs> over the period, so like was not just the eighties, but in you know then the the one in the uh, the two thousand and ten incarnation. So that made it eleven or twelve, I think something like that. You know, so it's amazing. It's just amazing. You know, but uh, I tend I, I was sort of always amazed I was still there you know, until. You know, they until I wasn't, you know,
0: so, uh, yeah. Now, that, that lineup was together up until uh, he went to the Blues. Did, did that lineup, I'm not really um, sure. Mm, no, no. In fact, what happened was
2: um, Eric went off. He, he, I think he joined Badlands.
0: Badlands in the 80, yeah. 80, probably late 88. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And so we had to start the tour with the After the War tour. And Cozy had been in the studio over w- drums and so we had cozy initially for the rehearsals but then that didn't work out and then chris slade
0: came in that's right chris slade was involved yeah
2: that's right and in fact chris was the drummer for that entire tour so chris uh yeah so we we only did, we didn't do america at that time we just did all over europe and um, japan and then uh th- that then we finished in edinburgh that was the last gig i did with him of that lot so uh, of that era but, uh, and that was something like may uh, 1989 may 89
0: now was there, was there a feeling amongst the band that that Gary Moore was basically going to totally ditch hard rock and heavy metal and move into another genre
2: Yeah well the strangest thing was it was a very odd, odd, odd situation because um, they they used to have these blues jamathons during um sound checks because we always did a sound check. And I voted with my feet, and I said, I really do not want to stand here playing three chords for twenty minutes. You know, I don't. It's it's not. It's no disrespect to anyone, but it's just not my, my thing. You know, I'm not a blues player. It doesn't doesn't interest me at all. And it was basically, you know, it's, it's it's to feature the guitar. It's not. I couldn't play blues keyboards to save my life. You know, um. So that was the germination of it. And then Bob Daisley <laughs> said to Gary, um, Why don't you do a blues album? Um, meaning, why don't we do a blues album? So that was like the band, you know. And Gary went, hmm. and so off he went, and he said, "I'm going to do a blues album." And I thought,
3: okay,
2: fine, good. And then I was sort of just—I don't know—I just uh, I was in an, uh, sort of in like this sort of bubble of nothing. And um, so when Gary's blues album took off it did really, really well, of course he wasn't going to come back and do the, the, uh, the rock stuff again. You know, he eventually went back and did a few things, but he didn't do any of that. That stuff from that era and I thought to be honest I thought it was incredibly brave to go out and do a completely new thing um and not play one of the songs that you've been known for in the years you know running up to it. you know so I, I I think I'd made I didn't really want I wouldn't have wanted to do it if I'm honest you know I'd had enough of the road I'd had enough of the life at that point um I you know so I needed a break myself really I needed to get away from the while, so uh i just think it was perfect for gary to do he couldn't i mean i don't think we could have carried on as we were there's only so many irish reels you know jigs and reels um and and i mean god love him i mean how how well did it do you know and i was very very pleased with him. you know he it was almost like his career went to a certain point that suddenly just took off you know which is great you know it's a uh, and you have to applaud it you can't be i can imagine
0: if I can interject, oddly enough, it was what broke him in the United States.
3: Yeah. He had remained,
0: yeah. even through his greatest periods of the 80s, he had remained a virtual unknown in the United States. Yeah, And the, yeah. the blues album and the second blues album broke him big. I mean, he was on, you know, the David Letterman show and yeah. the Jay Leno. I mean, he, he and was playing big, you know, like uh, arenas, like, you know, five, yeah. seven... Thousand seat arenas and selling them out, so he never had that type of success in the states.
2: No, and it was weird because we'd done uh, we'd done that tour with Def Leppard, we did a tour with Rush, and we did a long, arduous tour of clubs, uh, and still it didn't happen. You know that was that was really strange. With, with me with Gary, you know, we spent and he didn't tour there with me after 1987. You know, so we just didn't play in the states after that. And he, I mean, it's not for want of trying, <laughs> you know, definitely not for want of trying, but it just didn't, you know, the, the, maybe it didn't connect, the music didn't connect. We always got good responses, you know, and um, um, I've seen some video footage and stuff like that, and we went down really, really well, you know, and the rush tool was fantastic, but for some reason there was a disconnect for him to do well, you know, and that I don't understand, you know, all the power version records behind him, all this. But um, it was yeah the blues was what what broke him in America so it was it was quite strange because he he obviously felt slightly awkward with me because I'd, I'd sort of been left um, you know he'd just gone off somewhere else and he invited me out to the states to um, to come and do some you know a bit of writing whatever try and do some writing again it's not my genre so you know it didn't really work but um, I remember sitting with him in his house and he was living in in um, uh, somewhere in Connecticut and. Um, playing through Still Got the Blues with it. rehearsing it for the Letterman show, because <laughs> which was quite quite ironic after all those years. But, you know, it's actually just playing it with him so he could rehearse to do the Letterman show. So, uh, but, I, I think you know, it was just one of the... You know, for, for him, it was the best possible you know,
0: so thing. It was a kick for me as a long-time fan, dating back to the Thin Lizzy days, to see him break the United States and... A lot of people, and blues is always popular over here, and there were a lot of guitar players that people thought were, like, really exceptional guitar players. But then when they saw him, yeah. it was like he just blew everybody. And it, people would ask, did you ever see this guy, Gary Moore? Yeah, I've been watching him for 20 years. <laughs> but, but that's what broke him in the States. And there were a lot of people's jaws that were dropping, like, who is this guy? And I was like, well, he's been around forever, but... You yeah, know, he never got exposure over here. I mean, we, when he occasionally would play around here in the early to mid '80s, he would play clubs. Yeah, yeah, no. Mm. I mean, I I mean, I remember doing.
2: Um, you know, the, I like the Ritz, and um,
0: I can't try thinking in New York. And yeah, they played yeah the Ritz because my friend Phil saw you guys at the Ritz, and
2: uh, yeah, and I don't, I've done with you, refer, but, but um, he, he was going was a guitarist, guitarist. You know, when we played on. So, like, like we do a date with, we did a couple of dates with Queen. We did three dates with Queen, and you'd look around, and Brian May would be standing at the side of the stage watching Gary. We did some stuff with Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen would be watching Gary. You know, Santana would be watching Gary. You know, everyone, everyone um, that he was a guitar player's guitar, you know, um, guitarist. You know, he really. Much. It's it's very odd because when you stand next to someone like that for many many years, it's almost like you don't notice it. Anymore. You don't notice the 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 sheer brilliance of it, but I just got used to standing next to him every night, and I often didn't even listen. You know, it's weird, isn't it? I just wasn't listening to what he was doing. I wasn't standing there going, "Wow!" every night. You know, just occasionally you would go, "Wow, Gary!" And then, but I'd heard him play so brilliantly for so long that you, in a way, it's like having the best ice cream every day. You know, you just in a way you just don't you just don't notice it. You know, after a while, but um, yeah, it's it's he was an inspirational player, definitely.
0: If you watch some of the stuff when he was in Thin Lizzy, there's a there's a concert from um, Australia, a live show. Oh yeah, His Now this is seventy eight. His playing, there were very few guys that were playing like that in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. his playing was just off the charts.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You yeah, know, no, I they um, had on uh, the full um documentary here on Friday, and uh, there was some footage, lots of different footage, but the Gary stuff. just...
0: Yeah, yeah. there were just there weren't that many guys playing at that level in the in the
2: seventies. No no, 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 no. He's a, he's so dexterous, and uh, but but again, melodic at the same time. You know, it, he just had everything. You know, he really did have everything. And also with Gary, you know, he would he could play different styles. That's the other thing. You no, know, you, if you give say, oh, Gary, play some flamenco. He's sitting there playing flamenco. You know, Gary, you know, play play some folk. You know, he he had this sort of
0: ability to pick. Them. He was in a jazz fusion band, right? Coliseum. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I know, yeah. In fact, that nearly put me off joining, I tell you, because I, when I watched them and I saw Don doing all this wizardry mm-hmm. and stuff, and I just thought, not in a million years, I'm not going to be doing <laughs> this. You know. I, just, I really did. I thought, am I going to be able to do that? I kept saying, Gary, I don't know, it's not me, really what I do, you know, I don't do all this weirdly stuff, you know. Um, but as it was, it worked out all right. But I mean, yeah, I mean, so much. And the, um, the Andrew Lloyd Webber, the, the album that he did, um, Angela Webber, the variations you know there's something I you, know, you could and in fact if you listen to evita if you ever watch the film Evita with Madonna the first thing you hear is Gary it's that he starts the entire film because it's just his guitar playing, get right. you a bit hmm. um, so Gary had lots of fingers in lots of different eyes you know he was uh, he was very uh, very di- very capable of doing anything yeah so you
1: kind of left uh, you left music behind at that point after uh, Gary Moore and and you didn't really kind of you went off to be a teacher right a music teacher and did some other things um, yeah. but what got you back into playing with Gary again in two thousand and ten
2: Gary Gary's children uh, I taught at a, college, a school called Brighton College which was a, a paying um, school uh, sort of sort of young to eighteen. And that was, I had a full-time job there. That's what I did. I was head of wind and brass. And uh, I taught the clarinet and saxophone. That was what I did for 25 years, nearly. Um, 24 years. And Gary's children. went so, there, So Gary moved back down to, down to Brighton. And uh, three of his three children went to Brighton College. And Gary was aware that I was there. So Gary used to come up to my office and sit. And we used to chat, 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 chat. chat. And then one day he came in and said he was planning to do a tour, like a rock tour. And I'd had a really bad day, and I have to tell you that not once in twenty-something years had I ever shown the most, the slightest desire to go back and do rock music. I put it in a little box and I put it away. I wasn't going to do it again. And I had no equipment. I had one guitar that I'd kept, and I had nothing at all, no equipment, and I didn't even listen to it. And Gary said, do "You know, do you fancy doing it." And I went, "What are you mad?" And he said, "No, dear, you can do it. You know, we'll we'll do all the rock stuff." And and I just thought, "And I just thought, yeah, why not? I'll just do it." And so that was how it came about. So it was just a conversation we had in uh, in my office. And um, I had to do—I didn't leave the the college. I didn't leave my my job because I loved my job. So I had to do a little bit of juggling to do both. You know, Um, and it got slightly awkward because the school were getting fed up. You know, I was having time off and Gary wanted me to leave my job and come with him full time. But I think I was a little bit say wary, but I just thought, you know, i built this up for 25 years of this school and I love it. Why am I going to give this up? You know, which, which might sound odd to anyone that's a Gary Moore fan, but, you know, you because I'd sort of found myself slightly let loose before, I didn't right. want to find that happening again, you know, and I'm sure Gary would have never intended it, but I just thought, okay, Gary, and that Gary you know, I had to think of finances and, and what I was doing, you know, but um, it was quite nice to be able to do both. It was quite yeah. nice to be able to do both, and the school were very understanding, and I didn't, you know, I was able to do the shows and commit to the shows with Gary, which is good, um, but it was going to get awkward. Unfortunately, you know, with Gary's passing, yeah. it did mean that I didn't have to make any decisions, but... Um, after Gary, within the year that Gary died, um, there was a lot planned for that year, you know, and it was going to get slightly more awkward and uh, leave me with a dilemma, you know, so uh, what was going to do.
0: You know. Yeah. Do, do you think he would have returned as a hard rock slash metal player?
2: Yeah, you know, I don't know about metal, but definitely the Celtic rock. That was, that was what you kept on about, the Celtic rock idea. And the fact that um, we... It's very strange because you, you you he was planning to do an album. So he had he had three tracks for that album. He had three tracks, which are on you can hear on the Montreux um DVD thing. And so that would have that would have three tracks. And then you start to think, well, we're going to write some more? So he he and I were planning to write some more things. But I actually found it very difficult to come up with stuff because everything sounded like Emerald or um not the boys that back in town, but you know, everything was starting to sound very much like Lizzie. and i just thought you can't regurgitate these ideas you know so you're looking for something different and i found it very very hard indeed to come up with some new stuff and funnily i've been doing some writing of late and i found it so much easier not having to say i've got to try and write in this style i just whatever comes out comes out um but you know trying to write to a brief can get a little bit formulaic you know and and irish music has a certain sort of set of notes and a certain set of chords or whatever, you know. So um I think that that was that was going to be difficult. But that was what he was planning. He was planning more touring and um
0: an album. So more well, he would have returned more to maybe what his last two albums were, were like after the war and Wild Frontier, like that type of sound?
2: Yeah, I think definitely Wild Frontier. Yeah, I think definitely Wild Frontier. I think after the war was a little bit more um diverse in a way, apart from Blood of Emeralds, there wasn't such the um, the Celtic feeling on it as much as Wild Frontier. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that was the idea he wanted to do some, but with maybe a little bit more of a, a, a not so much produced twist to it, and a little bit right. more authentic, um, and maybe incorporating something of what he'd done in the previous twenty something years. You know, it was a bit odd for me doing a set of that stuff of all the you know the old songs and then sticking in "Still Got the blues and, um, walking by myself, you know, it didn't, it sort of, it was understandable because they were, they were big songs for Gary, but having said, right. you know, it just felt a little, they felt a little bit out of place in, in what we were doing. You know, But, um, again, you know, these are, these are things you just do, and, and, you know, you sort of hope they're going to work. And I mean, the, the, he went out really well at the gigs. The gigs were fantastic.
1: Well, I mean, unfortunately, um, you know, the year after you start working with Gary again, like you said, he, he passed and, uh, So now you were kind of like not doing anything again until i guess was it 2019 that uh you get the call from uh ufo guys again right i feel
2: like i feel like the grim reaper um (laughs) yeah um, it's very um yeah i mean without without waffling on too much but um i i i retired in um, 2015 2014 we just decided we'd had enough work so um, I, we, I, we left our house in England and we moved down to Lanzarote, which is just near um, Africa, uh, which is an island in the Canary Islands. And that was it really for me. I just thought that was it. But I, I, I'm a music examiner, so I examine classical music and jazz music as well. Um, so I was going back to England periodical, periodical, periodically to do that. Um, I'd read that UFO were doing their final tour and I thought... I was going to be in England, and I thought I'll come go and see them because you're never going to see them again. And I hadn't really again hadn't thought much about the band for a long time. I thought I must go. I've got to go. And my cousin is the merchandising woman uh, that works for, has worked for UFO for a long time. And I just sent her a, can you you know get me a pass to go? So I schlepped up from somewhere in um, uh, deepest England uh, on the train and went to see the gig, and it was just so odd that it was wonderful. It was uh, the one the last. But one concert they did with Paul, and um, it was at the Shepherd's Bush Empire. And what struck me was how fantastically warm the whole atmosphere was. So you had the warmth of the audience towards the warmth of the band. And, of course, I'd never seen Vinnie. I'd never seen Vinny, I'd never seen Rob. Um, and, in fact, I'd only ever seen Paul once. So um, and just to, to see them again was just fantastic. So... Um, I couldn't stay and say hello, I had to go I had to go get back to where I was. So I just said, you know, I'll see you and uh, thought nothing of it. And of course, then I read about Paul passing and um, I don't know, I never expected them to ask me, but uh, it was so easy. It was such an easy decision because I'd been to that gig and I'd seen what it was like. And it was just, you know, all the gigs that we have done have been fantastic, been really, really good, you know. Um, not one bad gig out of, you know, however many we've done, you know, we did in this that pre-pandemic and then the, the ones we've just done in the summer last year, you know, um, just incredible, you know, it's, it's it's just so good to play with them. I just love it, absolutely love it,
0: it. Well, I think it salvaged the lineup because I was talking to Mark before we went on the air and when we found out about Paul Raymond passing, I remember I spoke to two of my friends. We were all UFO fans for from the 70s. And we were talking about is the band going to go on? Like what's and and I we were talking about it between us. If Neil yeah. Carter was able to come back, it would not only it would add credibility because you know Pete Way was gone. You know there was no no, no Chapman or Shanker, although Vinny had been there a long time. But you yeah. kind of wanted, I, at least me as a fan, you wanted that cohesiveness to have as many you know you legitimate UFO members in yeah. that lineup. And we said it just kind of kidding around because I didn't even know that, you know, it was in the cards with you. And then when it was announced, we were talking to each other and saying, wow, this was perfect because that's that's the one guy that could, you know, add the credibility back to losing Paul Raymond. And you could say, wow, okay, you know, that's that's the guy, you know? Yeah,
2: I'm really I'm really glad that they asked me. And, um, you know, in a way, you know, it didn't end very well the first time. Um, you know, although although we were, you know, when it weren't daggers drawn, but it was it was a bit of a strange ending the first time back in nineteen eighty three for me, um, and then to go back and just have such a great time, and um, you know, I've got my I I didn't realise how well I'd get on with Phil because I I Phil and I just love the entire time we spend we just howl with laughter and we have the very much the same sense of humour, you know, and I'd forgotten that. Completely over the years, you know, you you might just, you know, you, you played not play, mine mind plays tricks, but you change things in your mind. And um, I the the difference in our ages were ten years apart. So when I was in UFO, he seemed a lot older to me and a lot more experienced. And I was I wouldn't say I was I wouldn't say I was um, never afraid of him, but I just was always. Sort of someone that I thought I wouldn't, you know, I sort of respected his distance, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. because Phil was Phil, you know, he was, he, was, uh, he was a wild boy. Um, but um, going back this time, you know, when I've had a different life,
0: you know, and
2: um, it's just wonderful, it's just absolutely wonderful. Like, I, you know, you've I really am very, very fond of him, and all of them, actually. I mean, Andy, Andy, and I always got on really, really well. and um, Vinny's fantastic, and, and Rob, they're lovely, lovely people. And it's just like a family, you know, it's like a family to be with, which made it all, all the more painful to stop when we did. You know, we, we stopped after the, we did a rock cruise and then obviously this horrible thing came along. And, um, you know, and it's just painful. You know, it's a, such a shame because we, we could have done a lot more, you know, a hell of a lot more. Um, and luckily we did get to do some dates last summer. And of course, no, Paul, Phil had his heart attack. So um, everything's a bit on hold. Whether we do any more, I really... Don't know, but um, you know we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, I would—I think all of us would love to, because you sort of miss that connection. You miss that connection with the people, you know, we really do, um, because we do get on very well.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually saw the band in—I guess it was late two thousand nineteen in New York City, uh, and then I think early two thousand twenty. Uh, I want to say you came back, and I saw you in Pennsylvania. Uh, and that was right before the, the pandemic kind of, you know, shut everything down. Um, so like, like we said, you know, you, you were able to do some shows, um, and then, you know, Phil had his heart attack. Um, how's he yeah. doing now, by the way, have you spoken?
2: He's, he's, yeah, yeah, I have yeah, I speak to him quite regularly. Um, he's, yeah, he's fine. I mean, he had to do, um, he had, um, stents put in, and he had to do some rehabilitation, which is now finished. And, um, he's doing, um, He's doing some tracks for. I think he, he said he calls it a moggish album, but it's, it's his own album. Um, so you know that, so that's currently what he's, he's doing. Whether he feels, you know, I mean, he's he's 75 next month, and whether he feels the need to go out on tour again, you know, I really don't know. It'd be lovely, it'd be really lovely. But um, you know, I, I don't think any of us would push him into it. You know, I think he, you know, it'd be dreadful to do that. And then, you, I mean, if he got sick, he wasn't really. Feeling that great in the summer, you know. I know he wasn't. I could, I could tell there was something slightly not, you know, as good, you know, about his health. So, you know. so obviously this was coming on um, you know, yeah. for a couple of months before. But, um, I, you know, I, I, he, he's a very, very um, charismatic, um, interesting person, and um, you know, he, he will just get on, get on with. He's a trooper, you know. So he will, he will just get on and do it. If he, if he feels he wants to, he will.
0: You know, yeah. How did you feel about getting back on the road and after that long period of time? How had to be a big adjustment?
2: Yeah, do you know, it's very strange. I'm afraid there is um, an innate show-off. Do you know that expression? You know, where people just love to go and razzmatazz it and go and play it to people and to, to the crowd. And I, it doesn't phase me in the slightest. I mean, I had a 22-year gap between the last time I played with Gary and the time I played with Gary again. And it was like someone just plugged the guitar in, or Figo. You, you know, I, I I I enjoy it too much to be worried by it. So, and going back with UFO I just felt we we thought we put three days rehearsal down um, to do before the tour. We really only needed one because I knew what I had to do. They were all up to speed. So it was, and then the first gig was just like you know, just like it always had been. You know, so it's, it it is very odd. I think if something you've done a lot. You can just slip into it, and uh, i have never wanted to shy away from playing to a crowd. Or you know, I, I feed off that sort of thing, that energy. You know, I really do enjoy playing to a crowd of people, and the bigger the better. Really, you know, I like, I like, you know, I like those big shows. You know, because it's it's like my mother said we used to say, "You're a show off." But I mean, <laughs> it's showing off. You know, you just um, because you do all the hard work, you do like the studio work, and you do the rehearsals, and then you get all that done, and then you can go and enjoy it and that's that's how i i feel about playing to people and i'm not intro introspective as a musician i just i just like to go and have you know good 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 time you know and let other people have a good time you
1: know is there anything else tom that you wanted to
0: i could on? ask you ten thousand more questions about <laughs> gary moore but i won't
1: <laughs> we
0: don't want to keep you here all
2: night
0: uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'll wrap up because okay. one, one will lead to 25 more. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we'll have to have you. Uh, we'll have you back at some time. We could do a,
2: well, a Gary
1: yeah. Moore show. <laughs> yeah, it's fine.
2: Yeah, it's, totally right. I was once on the. I was once on the phone for three hours to a guy in Japan. Oh wow! Um, who did a Gary Moore thing? And I said at one point, I said, "You do realize we've been, <laughs> now we've done two hours and 45 minutes. We're nearly three hours, you know." And this guy was such a massive. Gary Moore, you know, a person, you know. He just wanted to hear every single minute detail about everything.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I think you, you, your connection with Gary Moore is special because I think a lot of people, and myself included, felt that last incarnation of the band with with, with Daisley and yourself was really him at his best. I think you two guys were just, like, perfect compliments for him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Bob, Bob is the solid, most solid bass player. And it's weird because Bob is... He's sort of like unobtrusive. You know, he's really unobtrusive as a player, you know. But but he's there all the time. And I've played with some great players. Rob De Luca's great, you know. Um, but it, it's just that Bob. There's something about what Bob's role in Gary's band that just worked like a treat, you know. Um, and even, you know, Craig Gruber who came before him, you know, was I thought you know it was fine, you know, good. Um, Neil Murray, you know, there's, they had quite a few again, a few bass players along the way. Um, but um, Bob did well. Bob, the whole vibe, you know, the whole. Um, atmosphere within um, Gary's band. And, you know, it was perfect with Bob. You know, he, same sense of humor. You know, his sense of humor is a
0: great thing, you know. Yeah, no, that was the best. And I would have liked to seen that lineup stay together and see Daisley's songwriting come into the band a little bit more. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. I, think, I think that lineup could have really, you know, really grown from there. But it was also the, 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 the timing was we were getting close to 1990 90. and yeah. the handwriting was on the wall anyway. For most bands at yeah. that time, especially here in America, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. no I would have liked to see Bob being more involved with the writing, but Bob was always in Australia when we were doing. Uh, Gary and I would get together and do, you know, write, and then Gary would write obviously a lot on his own. You know, so, um, um, so, uh, yeah, Bob was never really around at the inception of the, uh, right. the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's probably why Bob never. He did a bit on Power of the Blues. I think he played. He had a few credits on Power of the Blues. Probably. He did. He
0: did, yeah. yeah. But he's a very, you know, he's talented,
2: very talented, talented lyricist. He's very good at lyricist. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Nice. Well, well thanks uh, for coming on. Yeah, we, Neil. We uh, appreciate pleasure. It. Yeah. We pleasure, appreciate the pleasure. your time
1: yeah. tonight and uh, hope you had fun and we, we had a good time. And uh, yeah, maybe we can have you back again at some point.
2: Yeah, okay, great. Love to see you guys.
1: Thanks, awesome. Neil. Thank you, Take Neil. care. Take care.